Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 52 of Yoga Land. I'm going to keep it real for a second, you guys. I have been on my own taking care of my daughter for the past mm, 10 days or so. I've got about seven more days to go and mama is tired. My brain kind of hurts and I'm finding myself annoyed with people, like people I don't even know, people who aren't even speaking to me, just people in my energetic field are like getting the energetic stink eye for me. So this conversation that I had with my guest, Gina Caputo, was the best possible conversation I could have today for a few reasons. First, Gina is so funny. She just makes me happy. Talking to her makes me happy. We are soul sisters. I mean, you just have to look at our last names and that's the very beginning of why we relate to each other. And I have a lot of respect for her. Gina lives in Boulder, Colorado, where she teaches integrated vinyasa. She's been on the ground floor of several yoga schools, including her most recent project, the Colorado School of Yoga. Prior to that, she was the owner of Kansas City, S-I-D-D-H-I. How cute is this? Kansas City Yoga Studio in Kansas City, Missouri. And before that, she was one of the founders of Sacred Movement in Venice, California. So, but back to why this particular conversation today was so helpful to me. We talk about one of my favorite benefits of yoga practice today, which is self-awareness. And we also talk about how yoga and meditation can help with that. Gina went on a 10-day Vipassana retreat last November, and she wrote a hilarious essay about it that you can find on her blog. I'll put that in the show notes page, actually. And so I asked her to tell some of the stories from that retreat, which will entertain you and also hopefully spark your interest in meditation. So... Before we get to the interview, just one little piece of housekeeping. We are doing a Mother's slash Father's Day little discount promotion for our shop. I feel really guilty that I did not get the shop up before Mother's Day like I had intended to. So everything in the shop is 25% off when you enter the code CELEBRATE. And this expires on June 18th on Father's Day at 10 p.m. Pacific. So get on over to the shop and get yourself a yoga land tank or one for your dad or your mom and enjoy the interview with Gina. So you are like me, you've been doing yoga for a long time, for almost 20 years. And the last time we spoke, you said something that stood out to me, which is basically, you know, we were talking about what still makes yoga yoga, like None of us is doing the or quote unquote original yoga. Right. But what you feel, and actually I 100% agree with you, is that what makes yoga different from other modalities, but still yoga, is that it's a tool for, for building self-awareness. And I don't know that I have any like ancient text to back me up on that, but it really makes sense to me, you know, when you look at all the different branches of Hindu yoga, all the different lineages, it seems to me that if we were going to drill it down to what do they all have in common, that's what jumps out at me. You know, whether your your practices involve asana, 
chanting, puja, meditation, all of the above, service, study, any of those, it seems to me that the common thread is this idea of transcending conditioned consciousness. And of course, in order to transcend conditioned consciousness and be able to observe your own conditioned consciousness, one must have what I think would be stronger self-awareness than you know, I certainly ever experienced pre-yoga. Yeah, yeah. It seems like the self-awareness is like, well, for to me anyway, the, it's like the seed. Yes. It's the catalyst that creates all of the other changes in oneself or, you know, like internally and then externally with the way that you relate to the world. Yeah, I think seed is the exact right word for it. Without that seed, I'm not sure the other things can can grow, really. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know how you would do them without that seed of awareness. Yeah. So how would you say that aspect of yoga has helped you since you started almost 20 years ago? Like, how were you different then versus now? Well, you know, we're Italian women, so I know you get me on this. <laughs> Very passionate, and, and I certainly never tamped down my emotions, And I have to say one of the biggest differences for me post-yoga, we'll call that like before yoga, my BY era, and after yoga, my AY era, (laughs) I would say one of the biggest differences is exactly the self-awareness, meaning this uh, like onboard observer, this inner witness of my emotions as they arise. And that's the most marked difference. Before, I would just have the emotion and experience, you know, let's call it the fallout from that emotion or the absolute joy from that emotion. But there wasn't a sense of tracking it as it was happening or observing it as it was happening. And so the feeling I had was kind of that you're a bit of a slave to your emotional fluctuations. And it doesn't feel as if you have choice, you know, I'm angry and I I just need to be angry, you know, and now I have post yoga or after yoga, AY, it's like, Ooh, I am observing volcano erupting internally. And I feel like there's this little sliver of space where maybe I have choice where I can say, you know what, we're going to just full on Mount Vesuvius today or, (laughs) (laughs) or, I'm going to recognize this and make a different choice. And I I like to think I do the latter more often than not. But let's be honest, there are still times when I feel that little petulance, like, no, I'm just going to have a tantrum. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Especially if you're with your Italian family, right? Yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) Because they get it. I have to say, though, even when I do experience myself having some variation of a tantrum now, it still is different from before yoga because again, I'm continuing to observe it. And there's something in that observation that, that I think makes it less wantonly destructive. Yeah. If that even sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's a little bit less potent if you have some yes. awareness of it. It just is just, it's really true. I know exactly what you're saying. The other thing that came up for me when you were talking about that is I had very similar experience to you, super, just highly emotional girl growing up. (laughs) And I think the other part of the self awareness is being aware that you don't have to believe every single thought. Like once you start to watch the emotions and watch the thoughts, it's like you're watching a movie. Yes. Oh, yes. This is just like, I don't have to actually participate in the 
the behind the scenes of the movie, I, you know, it's just, so then you can observe them and let them change. Yeah. And I think you bring up a great point, like having that seed of self-awareness in place, you then recognize the impermanence of emotion because you're watching emotion rather than just being so deep in it that you, you, you're blind. You're watching it and you see how it has an arc. Like, I guess it would be an energetic arc where something might build, it might get, you know, really powerful and then it, it passes. And I think having a sense of that impermanence hopefully prevents us from overly identifying with those ever changing emotions, you know, so that maybe we're less likely to label ourselves as I'm an angry person or even I'm a happy person, but more accurately that I'm a changing person. That is so true. Oh my gosh. I know I find these days when I have to write bios or define things about myself, I'm like, I'm ever changing. How do I define like right. who I am anymore? Because it's right, different right. every moment. It's different every day, which is, you know, you don't have to get that metaphysical in a bio, but, but it's just, it's just what I think. It's, it's what accurate. I think. Yeah. yeah. I am a different person every day. Every moment to moment depends <laughs> on the moment you get me. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, I'm wondering if you can relate to this I realize now that I've always been a person who searches for meaning in things. I think there's something in the Myers-Briggs about this. And whichever one it is, I'm that one. I'm the one that uh-huh. searches for meaning. Uh-huh. So because of that, like if I had an emotion, I would try to attach like a really deep meaning to that emotion. Sure. I had a very sure. strong experience of something. And now I see like I don't have to attach meaning to every single thing. And it's, it's actually a relief. I I think perhaps before I started awareness practice, I would have thought it would be boring to live that way. Right. 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 But it's actually, it's actually a relief to not be. No, I think that is absolutely right on because another thing that, that your state comment there brings up for me is particularly as a yogi where, you know, it's all the positive aspects of life are, are highly emphasized when we give so much meaning to emotion, we run the risk of feeling shame around having emotions that aren't, you know, yogically acceptable. Mm. And I think that that can be a real pit, you know, where you're just feeling ashamed at at these emotions. And, and like you said, there's, there's meaning, therefore I must be a terrible person or et cetera, et cetera. Instead of seeing them a bit more like Uh, clouds, you know, that kind of pass, come and go, and they come into a field of your consciousness and then move away. I personally feel that shame is, is, you know, not a, I wouldn't want to deny any emotion on the spectrum, but sure doesn't feel really universally beneficial, you know, to be kind of mired in in your own shame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Brene Brown is, as she's the shame researcher, she's a sociologist. Yeah. And that's kind of what she affirms that, that guilt is a, an emotion that's kind of necessary for, to prevent us from becoming so, complete sociopaths. Right. right. <laughs> but right. the layer of shame on top of the guilt is actually, is not helpful. It's counterproductive. So yeah, I, I feel that. Yep. I don't want to skip ahead too far, but I, I do, I will say that I feel as though in the sort of meditation communities, somehow they do a better job of presenting this idea that there are a spectrum of emotions and that's part of the life experience. But in the yoga world, for some reason, 
I wonder if it's because so much of what we do starts with the body. There does seem to be this tendency toward wanting to present everything as if you do this, you know, you will be happy. Yeah. Well, you make me laugh because I'm I'm thinking of I have a fantasy that we could be more honest about yoga and the marketing of it. And because I think really what you're speaking to comes from trying to sell yoga. If we were completely honest, our taglines would be things like, you know, yoga with Gina, come and let's suffer just the right amount together, <laughs> you know? It's made it seem uh, more attractive to really focus on the positive aspects. You'll be more relaxed, calmer, happier. And all of those may be true. But if we sell it as, you know, there's a direct path to those things, as long as you focus on your asana, I'm I'm afraid we leave people ill-resourced for the big challenges in life or when any of the emotions on the other side of the spectrum arise, what are you going to be able to do with them? Or how how are you going to work with them if you've been sold a practice that promises only the positive side? So I, I have a fantasy that we would all say exactly what it is, you know, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. A, the whole spectrum, a mix, a blend. Yeah, I think I think my tagline would be, you're messed up. I'm messed up too. Come to class and let's be messed up together and have fun. That's right. Let's work with this together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. I actually remember, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, but I, I do remember years ago being at Yoga Journal and one of the more senior editors who'd been there for a long time and like who knew this, the really, really senior teachers really well said to me something to the effect of the teachers who you just look up to and, you know, live their yoga practice every day and do two to three hours of practice a day. Like they do that because they have to do that. They need to do that to maintain their sanity, quite frankly. Like, and it wasn't an insult. It was just like, that's actually why they're such good teachers, right? Right. right. They, because they understand the spectrum of human experience. And this is a tool that helps keep them sane that helps keep them balanced. Yeah. Yeah. I I say all the time in teacher training, really emphasize, I know it seems like it should be a given, but I've, I've definitely seen all too often teachers who are out there, especially teaching full time, get to a point where it, it may become quite challenging to have your own practice because you're out there working so that you can pay your bills and, and, and so forth. And it, I think that that is essentially the kiss of death for a teacher to lose their practice. And I really emphasize asana practice is wonderful, particularly when you're practicing it in a way that emphasizes, you know, the inner landscape or self-awareness. But if you prefer for your practice to be more of a physical outlet uh, or just in a way, a way to express through your body, then I would say it becomes really important for you to have a, a meditation practice so that you can really hone your focus to what's happening internally. And I think you're absolutely right that it is what makes them excellent teachers, you know, when your teacher is a practitioner. And I think it's definitely what keeps us sane. I mean, another big thing for me that, that you've mentioned to me before is as part of that practice, I can't help but think that these great teachers have to develop a, a healthy sense of humor. Internally, when I think of great teachers, you know, people that come to mind are like Richard Freeman here in Boulder, 
And one of the things I love about him, of course, is his sense of humor. And I can't help but think that that must come from so much practice, sitting and, and watching what arises. And my goodness, if you don't have a sense of humor about it, that can be quite devastating. And you could definitely, you know, kind of lose it. It's so true. I, I, you know, I feel like, okay, we have to plan another whole podcast about the importance of humor and spiritual practice, because okay. it's like float, <laughs> it's floated around in my brain for so long, but I would want to process it more offline yeah. with you um, to give people a more coherent picture. But I, I agree a thousand percent. Like, you know, when you think of teachers who you really admire and seem like they're, well, for me anyway, when you're, they're really living the practice, part of it is that they don't take themselves too seriously. They might take the practice really seriously, yes, but they don't take themselves too seriously. That's why I, I say be sincere, not serious, because I think that's where you start to shut off like a, a very important tool in this spiritual practice, which is having a sense of humor around what arises. And just like you said, when I like think of the Dalai Lama, I was thinking he's exactly yes, who comes to hilarious. mind. When you think about it. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Uh, Pema Chodron is another uh, teacher hero of mine, and she's also hilarious, you yeah. know? And, you know who and else that's is kind of what hilarious? He, he, Sorry. Yeah, Garmook. <laughs> Have you ever taken class from Garmook? Oh, gosh, yes. Yes. Oh, I love that woman. She's so, yeah. she so gets it. She yep. has this twinkle in her eye, like she just gets it. I personally think that if we championed having a sense of humor around your spiritual practice, your meditation practice, maybe more people would do it. Yeah. But we mostly what we get is this empty your mind. And then you sit there and try to empty your mind and almost inevitably fail. And if there's no humor around that, it just becomes very frustrating. And, and why would you want to then do that every day? Totally. You know, it, just, it seems so sad. It seems yeah. So sad. We don't want to, yeah. I mean, that is true. It's like, I think people who, feel like, oh gosh, I never want to do yoga. I never want to like go sit and watch my brain. They just think it's going to be like this bone dry, like vanilla, horribly sad experience. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And it's really more, I find sitting to be almost a very sincere exploration of my humanity. There are so many blind spots that are revealed when you sit that really could be devastating. You know, I, I was thinking in preparation for this, I was thinking about ways that meditation has really served me lately. And, and I got one of the best compliments of my entire life by a recent teacher trainee, who's also a psychotherapist. And he said, you have a very high threshold for shame. Huh? It was in the context of talking about blind spots arise uh, when you with all the, you know, what's been going on lately, exploring implicit bias and white privilege. And I have to say, there are so many opportunities to witness my own blind spots and just feel like, you know, like a face palm, like, oh my, how could I have been doing that? <laughs> or how could I have been oblivious to that? And so on and so forth. And I'm not saying so much that those realizations are funny, but if you have a relaxed attitude around things that could be potentially shameful arising, it's kind of like you feel this, well, this too I can use, you know, this too I, I can include. The reason I bring that up is I think having a little sense of humor around your own blind spots increases this, as the student called it, a threshold for shame that allows you to maybe be then more proactive 
in how you want to activate change in your life or in, in the lives of others. Yeah. Like we were talking about a moment ago, uh, if we get mired in whether it's the embarrassment or the shame or, or we have no humor or you have that very dry, sad experience, then I question whether you'll get much traction in activating any change around whatever arose. Yeah, 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 yeah. What you said reminds me of that famous Nora Ephron quote, which I've never thought about in terms of spiritual practice. But Nora Ephron used to say, it's all material. In other words, like bad experiences, embarrassing experiences. She would just channel that into her writing. It was all great fodder, fodder for her creativity and her art. I never really thought about that as in that same, I never thought of that, thought of that same link for, for spiritual practice or for teaching. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. And, and an analogy that I use along the lines of material is uh, related to gardening, which is kind of ironic since I'm kind of the world's worst gardener. I can grow basil and that's about it. But I think of, you know, how do we fertilize uh, like the foods that we eat or fruits, you know, if you wanted to use the kind of spiritual metaphor is we, we put manure mm, yeah. on the things that we want to grow. And you know, manure is shit. It's material, right? Yeah, we, you, yeah. can, you can use it all and, and it fertilizes. It fertilizes the, the seeds of your growth. Yeah, yeah. The, the lotus grows from the mud. Exactly. Another, yeah, yeah. I think one thing to say also is just that student paying you that compliment. It's clear that in order to have that sense of humor about oneself, or that high threshold for shame, as he put it, you you have to have a certain basic sense of security in yourself, you know? Yes, I would definitely agree with that. Um, See, the thing is, we look back at the fabric of our lives, and we look at things that we've transcended, you know, you know, this very well, you go through something deeply challenging, and this can run the, the gamut from you know, when you're in junior high, it might be you get broken up with and you're absolutely devastated and you think you can't possibly go on. Or maybe later in life, it's the loss of a loved one or an experience with cancer. You witness yourself. This goes back to the self-awareness. You witness yourself, make it through these challenging experiences, whether they're, you know, you don't have to assign a value to them. They're just hard wherever you are in your life. You experience them and you witness yourself make it through. And I think little by little, that builds this foundation that you speak of, this sense that like, I'm going to recognize some things that are going to be hard for me to recognize about myself. And I will wobble, let's say. Uh, I may make mistakes. I may put my foot in my mouth, you know, but I have to have that foundational belief that I can make it. And, and evidence of that is, is what's gone on in your life before. Every single one of us has been through something. I, I call on that, you know, yeah. that recognition of, of times in my life that were very, very challenging. And you know what? Oh, look, I made it. I made it. And I kind of try to keep track of that. Yeah. Yeah. And also like doing regular practice together with your community, like, or going deeper in your practice and even like workshops or trainings or meditation groups, when people share questions or I'm actually specifically thinking of questions like when I used to sit with Sally Kempton and she would have mm-hmm. a and a portion and someone, you know, five people would ask questions and you'd go like, oh, they experienced that too. Like yeah. that makes you feel more secure in yourself because you see so much of your experience is so universal. Like, Absolutely. And, and, it, and it feeds that um, avatar-esque 
notion of, I see you, I see you. And I love those moments. Like I've often said, my fantasy is that we have group sits, we all get together and, and it's beautiful. We have our, our little gong and, you know, it's a wonderful ethereal space. Uh, and then we close our eyes and we sit for an hour, let's say, and then we come out. And what I would love is then to have this group session where we each share like, well, let me tell you what was going on in my mind. Totally. And then we'd all be uproariously laughing. And all of a sudden we wouldn't feel alone in all of our roller coaster of emotions, our neuroses, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yes. We could be high-fiving each other and then we'd be like, and and yet we made it. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> Let's do it again tomorrow. Yeah, oh my gosh, that is so funny. That's so true. I think that's why I am so in love with the essay you wrote about your 10-day Vipassana sit because you revealed like what was going on for you in that. So you did a sit in the past year with Goenka Yes, Which is like last November. Yes. Really well known state. It's like a 10 day fully mm -hmm. silent retreat. You cannot talk to anyone. And it's like fairly austere, isn't it? I would say very, not fairly, yeah, very yeah. austere. And I also have to back up one second because prior to it, I was saying, oh, I'm going to be gone on this 10 day meditation retreat. After I did it, I changed that language a 10 day meditation course. Yeah, because it is austere. And with retreat, I know that there's a whole range of retreats. But the, the treat part of the retreat was not obvious. Oh, God, no, it sounds like the biggest treat was like sprinkling gomasio on your apple. <laughs> it was it was when the, when the smallest things become just monumental in importance to you. It's so yeah. great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I already emailed you that I have all these like little idiosyncratic questions, but I, yes. I really want to ask some of them because there are things that I've always wondered because, you know, I first learned meditation from Sarah Powers, who was like a big Goenka retreat person. I think she used to do one at least once a year. And so she actually talked about how austere it was. And I was like, I'm never doing it. I don't right. think I could do it. Right. But one thing I have always wondered is he, he comes in via video, right? Like he does right. Why? Why do you never get to meet him and see him? Well, now you don't get to meet him because he died. He died in 2013. Oh, I did not know this. Yes, Goenka is, wow. is now intergalactic Goenka. You could go to his courses when he was alive. I am so grateful that someone at some point, because the, a lot of the, the content that we watch in the evenings with Goenka were recorded a really long time ago. And now it's like, goes without saying you record everything. Yeah. But back then, I think, you know, somebody had like one of those big cameras that you put on your shoulder or something and recorded all this, which is uh, whoever that was, wherever you are, thank you for yeah. that. I have to say it is, it's strange because, I mean, we get why we can't be with him personally right now, but it was confusing to me why they would opt for video over, I think, what we commonly think of as lineage. Like, surely there were some senior teachers right. that, that were by his side forever. Couldn't they deliver the transmission? And so during it, that was a thought I was having. It felt strange. Like, well, wait a minute. There's these two live teachers that you must have thought were good enough because they're sitting right here. And yet they sit in silence. 
and let the video uh, speak for itself. So during it, I, I had that same thought. It struck me as odd. And then, of course, in retrospect, it's like, well, first of all, Goenka, also hilarious. Uh, and for anyone that does the course, that sense of humor doesn't come out immediately, but it comes out exactly when you need to remember that this is a sincere practice, but what arises can also be humorous. Afterwards, I felt so grateful to get it from him. Um, his personality uh, is pretty spectacular. Huh. So it seemed much less weird later, but my first couple of days, it was just kind of like, well, what are they here for? The answer to that is, if you have a question, obviously you can't ask a video. So we have the opportunity to say, you know, things like, is it normal that I'm doing this? And they do little check-ins, you know, are you able to notice the sensations associated with your respiration? But overall, as you pointed out, it's a silent course. So there's very, very, very little talking. I literally was imagining you like on Orange is the New Black. I could not help it. Yeah. Because, you know, you talked about how the men and the women are separated. You know, your little stall was not the, the little place where you slept every night. It didn't, it was not a floor to ceiling wall, right? It was like almost like a Correct. cubicle. Yes. yes. You were not allowed to exercise. So you would go speed walking around the pond, which like killed me just imagining you do that. Well, the whole experience was one in revealing your attachment and aversion, which yeah. of course in yoga we are, are two of the five kleshas that we call raga and dvesha. And in the course, they say um, craving and aversion. Uh, so whichever way you like to put it, the whole course was just an experience in revealing your attachments and aversions. And this is a perfect example of needing a sense of humor because you're observing all the ways that you seek comfort and connection and familiarity. And for me, you know, like a being social, I, I realized until you step away from your normal routine, I don't think you have a very clear picture of how much attachment and aversion you have down to the most absurd things. I would get in bed to my, I had brought flannel sheets because it was actually quite, quite cool, quite cold in November in the mountains. And uh, I would get in bed and have a completely uh, unreasonable experience with this flannel. And, and it's like, wow, <laughs> now the flannel is, you know, filling the void of, of human touch. Yeah. You know, I'm like, Oh, my flannel pillow. I'm, you know, I'm nuzzling it like it's a new infant. And I thought, Oh my God, girl, you are whack. But it, okay. The other attachment that killed me was your emotional support banana. <laughs> and this, Let's this talk about me. your emotional support okay. banana for a moment. Uh, my ESB. So uh, something that, that uh, our, our listeners here may not know is that as part of this course and yet another way to reveal your attachments and aversions and, and patterned thinking and conditioned consciousness is we're fed very well. You're just not fed as much as you're used to. Very well, very healthy, very lovingly prepared food. I, I must say that, you know, but I love eating. I love eating. I love cooking. It, food is a creative outlet for me. And so all of this is stripped away. I, it, that was a really strange one. I couldn't cook for the entire time. And that's something I derive so much pleasure out of. In fact, so much pleasure that clearly I'm attached to it. So we get a breakfast at 
6.30, yes, 6.30 in the morning, we get breakfast. And then we have lunch at 11. And that's your last meal of the day. And I realized in myself, and this is evidenced when I do things like go camping or even just grab a flight somewhere. You know, I've got probably like you have with your daughter, I pack this whole, you know, 10 course meal, you know, just considering any food craving I may have. Well, I might want something crunchy, therefore I need to bring these. Or if I want something sweet, I need to bring these on and on. I overpack for everything. So here I am realizing, oh my God, I'm probably going to die if I don't eat after this 11 a.m. meal. I'm convinced I'll die. And so I, I sneak a, oh, let's be honest. I stole a banana, you know, (laughs) out of the mess hall or, or the dining area. And just like those flannel sheets, this banana became my entire world because this banana represented the fact that I in fact wouldn't die. You knew you were going to be okay because you had the banana banana. in the background. And because I, and this is where this awareness comes in so handy because I meditate, because I sit, I'm, I'm treating this banana in this way and I'm witnessing my thoughts and feelings towards this banana. (laughs) And that's where I had this revelation, like, Oh my goodness. Like I am treating this like it's my emotional support banana, <laughs> and, you know, and it has a, its little vest on and it, it's everything to me. <laughs> I'm like, the amazing thing is you did not eat the banana. You did not actually need the banana. No, it's kind of awesome because then it t- teaches you even more about your attachment. Like it wasn't that you actually did, you know, get so hungry that you needed the banana. It wasn't that you completely had a mental breakdown and you needed the banana, you know, it's just the attachment that the banana was there just in case. Just in case. And that's this comfort thing. We have an attachment to comfort and these courses reveal that in so many ways. You know, one of the things you, you said uh, that we, we couldn't exercise and a lot of people have a strong reaction partic- to, to that rule, particularly because because I think it attracts a lot of yogis who really enjoy their their physical practice. And so one of the things we would do is come out of a two or three hour sit, uh, you have a short break, 15 minutes or so, and you'd want to kind of stretch and and they asked us not to do that. And so you kind of just had to stay with the physical non fatal, although sometimes that was questionable, but non fatal physical discomfort, you just had to stay with it. And at the moment, you feel like a little brat. And you think, why are you taking everything away from us? I mean, that's 100% how I felt. Why is it a big deal if I stretch? Well, because then I would miss the opportunity to witness how attached I am to immediately alleviating this discomfort, right? And you know, you're a human. Sometimes things happen and there is no quick way out. There is no way to immediately alleviate this. You have to stay with it Mm -hmm. and stay with it. And when I think of uh, people that are are caregivers for people with ALS or, or like Alzheimer's, and when you think of how long that period of care might be. And here, this person you love is suffering and you want to alleviate it and make it go away. And we can't. And I feel like we're ill resourced to work with those almost inevitable challenges that arrive in our lives that can't be quickly solved. Yeah. And so in taking all of that little comforts away from us, 
uh, gave uh, me and I, I'm sure everyone else the opportunity to really see how deep that attachment to comfort goes and how I would say to some degree how potentially harmful that attachment is, how much suffering, at least if not harmful, how much you'll suffer uh, because of that when you don't have a quick fix, yeah. when you don't have a banana and you don't have a stretch. It was all so cool, but you use the analogy of the lotus growing through the mud. It's just, it was all so fantastic, yet so horrendous yeah. to, to get to the fantastic. So you know? did, yeah, so did you have any really blissful meditations? After, yeah, after, so up until about day five, and keep in mind, of course, this is just my experience and everyone has their own experience. And for all I know, people were having blissful moments all along, but it took me until about day five. And then when Goenka gave us the full technique, at that time, they allowed us to meditate in what they call a meditation cell. And, you know, right away, that word invokes something awful but it's a little room. I want to say it's about five by seven, this little tiny room. And there's two light switches. There's one at standing height that you turn on, and then there's a cushion in there and nothing else. Mm. And then you sit and there's another light switch right at seated height, which I just thought was adorable. But that's mm. like another example of when you've been meditating, you know, 12 hours a day for five days, you're like, oh, light switches are so cool. So <laughs> you... How ingenious. I, what a luxury. I know, I know, totally. Every little thing becomes so meaningful. But once I was in that cell, and this is just interesting, I am sure some people were having the opposite reaction to being in the cell. And I don't know if this speaks to like where I am on the autism spectrum or what, but I loved being in what felt kind of like sensory deprivation. Yeah. When you describe it, it reminds me of those water tanks without the water. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I have to say that was huge for me to, to be able to be in that cell. And what I was struggling with in our group sits in the meditation hall, which is all we were able to do prior to that, was the distraction of everyone's sounds. And, and one thing I wrote about extensively is how sick everybody was getting. Uh, and they were sick with a full on cold, you know, like phlegmy, uh, sneezy, coffee, uh, constant uh, so someone came in with a cold and, and pretty much everybody got it. And so I was really struggling with my attachment to silence or my aversion to phlegm, either way you want to look at it. I was really struggling with that in the hall. And so when they, they let us go into those meditation cells, that was when I would say it became blissful. Uh, and, and in there, it, I, I said blissful with a little intonation there because I, I kind of said it in finger quotes. There was still all of the same stuff. There was no like unicorns coming up in the field of my consciousness and, and nothing like transcendent. It was just, I felt now I could focus a little more clearly on what was arising. And it's just so interesting. I found it blissful to track my thoughts and how they kind of um, pinball around. And it's so interesting to, to look at like, you, you catch yourself thinking 10 minutes in, let's say, and you, you, how did I get to this thought? You know, and you're thinking um, something that has no relation to what's happening in the present moment, you sitting in a cell, you're thinking about this thing that you're going to do and, uh, or, or this thing that you did or a conversation you had. And it's really neat to, to kind of track 
the, the trajectory of that thought, like how one goes to the next and the next. And I just felt I could do that more effectively. Um, yeah, well, you like, right trained up your concentration. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what one could argue, even as I say this, one could argue maybe then the better place for me was smack dab in the Flemmy meditation hall, you know? Sure, that'll be your next I was, retreat. I was attached to the silence and the and the quietude, but I was glad to have both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> next retreat, you will bring another patient zero who brings uh, some phlegmy, yes. disgusting cold, yes. and your yes. your work will be to stay with that and still be blissful. Well, yeah. Next time around, when that happens, I will definitely silently laugh because you just said it would happen and I'll remember this moment. oh god oh no I'm sorry <laughs> no it's a, it's gonna be a great laugh because of course that's gonna happen yeah and if it's not that it's gonna be something else you know yeah it, it's gonna always be something and all we can really do is develop the ability to find it workable when you came out of the well not when you came out of the retreat the the last morning I think you said you were allowed to start talking to each other all of these people who'd been sitting silently yeah. together, which is so amazing to me. What did you guys talk about when you, when you started talking? I have to say, okay, I came into it so fearful that I wouldn't be able to talk to other people because I'm an extrovert. I am a yoga teacher. I like eye contact, hugs. These are like my favorite things in the world. And they were all going to be taken away. And I was going to be living shoulder to shoulder with others and I thought, this is going to be impossible. I'm going to fail. There's no way I can do it. And so that's what I was coming in with. And, you know, those attachments to connection are, are very, very real. But by the end, when they told us we could talk again, and largely that's practical because we have to clean up, we clean the whole place and you kind of do need to talk. It's also like a, a way to ease back into regular life. And so we had a morning sit and then they, I think it was at lunchtime, yeah, lunchtime was when we could talk again. And I completely retreated. Like I did not want to talk. And furthermore, I was so afraid at that point that the conversations that people were going to have were going to be trivial. I'll just say it. Mm. I felt like the only conversation I wanted to have was simple and deep and honest. And I didn't want to start talking about the weather or what we were going to do. I don't know. I, I felt yeah. such aversion to, to talking again. And I so desperately wanted to just go back in the cell. So interestingly enough, I thought I would be thinking about talking again and excited for that the whole time. And I had the complete opposite response and ended up having a very mellow conversation. I went, I finally went down to the lunch place and I sat at a, a small table. There were the, the boisterous tables and I, that, that's, that'd be my table any other day. But this day I went to like what you could call the quiet table. And of course, what the first thing we talked about was, oh my God, do you remember the grilled cheese on day three? Or I mean, not the grilled cheese, the macaroni and cheese on day three. Or, and then it was like, oh, how about that cobbler? Because whoever was cooking seemed to have a sense of when we were about to completely fall apart. Oh, completely yeah. fall apart. Yeah. You're like, I'm never going to make it. I'm going to die. I, this is the worst thing ever. And you walk in and I, I'll never forget macaroni and cheese, mm. this giant trough of homemade mac and cheese. Then it became the most important thing in the world. Every single bite, you're just thinking like, this is heaven. This must be it. This is what they're talking about. 
And then another day there was a like a berry, um, what do you call it when it has the crumbly stuff on top? A berry. Uh, a cobbler? Yes, it was a cobbler. And that too, like on any other day, maybe mac and cheese or berry cobbler isn't the most exciting thing for me to think of. And those days it means everything. So those were our first conversations were around the blessed woman that was taking care of us without ever seeing her face. Wow. She knew. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, so the first thing you guys talked about was like the one thing that was soothing in the midst of, you know, constantly looking at your attachment and aversion. It's like, you looked at the one thing that, that was universally soothing. Yeah. And and it kind of goes into this, you know, we talk about comfort food Mm -hmm. and, it really revealed, uh, and I, I'm sure I knew this on some level, but it was a very big revelation of, you know, when you strip away some of the other human comforts, like touch, you know, like hugs, put a hand on a shoulder. That was another thing. Not only can you not talk, you can't gesticulate and you can't touch each other. And you might not even identify as a real touchy feely person. And then to have that completely taken away, I think it shifts then your focus of to find comfort of elsewhere, which is why I had comfort from my flannel sheets. I had comfort from my emotional support banana. And I had comfort from this woman, a, a completely anonymous woman, but, but I knew she was in there offering you this tiny little gesture of comfort so that it continued to feel workable. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, so I I think you've articulated it really well in terms of, you know, what are the benefits of doing this to oneself? But I want to just kind of reiterate a little bit, like, it seems to me like a big part of it is seeing that you can take away most of your comforts. (laughs) You know, of course, you're still got your flannel sheets, you're still in, (laughs) you're still, you still have shelter around you, you're still being fed, but you can take away most of your everyday comforts and and make it through. I mean, did that, did you feel like that when you finished? Uh, yeah, I, I have to say there are two things I've done in my life that I, I experienced myself mentally go to an edge and, and, you know, I live in Boulder and there are extreme athletes that do this any given Tuesday. But a few years ago, uh, my husband's a cyclist, a cycling coach, and I, he's come on so many yoga things and I wanted to sort of repay the favor to my beloved partner. And we did a bike thing together. And we ended up doing a a bike ride that was a hut trip from Telluride to to Moab. And it was mentally grueling for me. Uh, Of course, I went into it with so much arrogance, like, oh, yeah, I'm tough, I, I can do it and no preparation. And it was so much more mentally grueling than I expected. And it was physically also uh, grueling. So I, prior to my sit, I always looked at that as one of those experiences, like you just described, where you said, look, I could take away a lot of my comforts. I can suffer and I'm okay. I, mm-hmm. I lived. Mm-hmm. And, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying, where you have this baseline sense of self and capacity and what you can do. And I think it's so wonderful for humans to have these experiences so that, you know, when the stuff hits the fan in your life, you, you do have that foundational sense. So prior to my sit, I always looked at that ride as like, okay, now I knew I did it. So now I know. 
And then this sit is, is the other big thing where now I, it expands your sense of self and, and expands your sense of capacity. And when I say expands your sense of self, I don't mean in any kind of pompous posturing way. I just mean the sense that you will call on uh, when things are, are really tough for you. It's this knowing. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I think of is, you know how maybe moms or dads will will tell you, oh, Andrea, you're the most beautiful in the whole world and you're the smartest woman in the whole world and, and the kindest or any of these things. And it's so wonderful to hear that, but it's a completely different ball game for you to self-observe any quality in yourself that you can have wonderful people telling you things. And I just think there's no substitute for you experiencing, witnessing yourself being kind, being tough, being beautiful, you know, whatever. And this course, and, and really uh, every sit is an opportunity for you to, to witness uh, what you're capable of. I remember years ago asking one of my teachers, Cindy Lee from Om Yoga in New York City, her husband at the time was what I called a professional meditator because he taught meditation at Shambhala. And I was so curious what what's the difference between me sitting there thinking about groceries and the thing I should have said and blah, blah, blah. And him, you know, I wondered like, what does it look like under his hood when you're a professional meditator? And she described that the main difference was stamina, huh. was this ability to sit with what percolates up over and over and over again and not bail on it, you mm. know, because it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. You didn't sit there to think about groceries and you do, mm -hmm. or, you know, you mm -hmm. sat there to be present and, and do something magnificent and, and all this mundane, ordinary condition stuff is coming up. And that I've never forgotten that. I asked that question so many years ago and I remember it that so much of what we do on the cushion is just develop stamina for, for being human. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 And developing a sense of, of your capacity. So yeah, like you said, it's like, I walked away from that feeling like, okay, I can do more than I thought. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean when you said you, you feel more resourced? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I can do more than I thought so that when things come up, I have a, a greater, broader, deeper sense of my ability to stay with this and work with this. Yeah. And I have to say, you know where that translates is? This is what I want to help my students feel mm -hmm. in any way that I can. And this kind of uh, segues into this feeling of, you know, in modern postural yoga, I have a little fear that when we're doing these classes that are really high, uh, fast paced, you know, that kind of you get this feeling of they're like jamming a lot of things in this one hour period. I fear that when you're in keep up mode, it's going so fast that you can't internally observe your own capacity to stay with something, Yeah, you know, and I love flow. I'm a student of flow. I love what, when, you know, the emergence of vinyasa flow, but I wonder if we took it a little too far and then lost those opportunities to quite frankly, uh, witness our own suffering. And of course, I'm not at all talking about like, you know, twist your knee and, and stay with it. I don't mean like injurious. I'm talking about holding warrior two and feeling that sensation begin, feel it peak, feel it change. You know, I think 
these are the little stepping stones to developing a, a sense of what you're capable of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and resources, mm-hmm. you know? And so for me, it's, it's hugely important that we, we have a nice mix of fluidity. You know, I think flow is important in, in today, you know, this, I don't want us to, to get so rigid that uh, then, then you can't really bend when life calls for you to bend. But also I love the idea that yoga asana may be an opportunity for people to self-observe, like I said earlier, just the right amount of suffering. So no one's getting hurt, but it's not comfortable either. And you slowly but surely kind of develop this ability to go, then work with something that is not yoga asana in your life and feel like, oh, you know, those holding forearm planks might translate into this moment right yeah. now, you know? Yeah, it's true. And I mean, I think... um I have so many thoughts as you're talking about this, but I think also just because we are such a fast paced culture and I agree with you, I think it's important to, I, I think that's the challenging thing is that the fast pace is good in a sense because most Americans don't move their bodies enough. It's, it's mm-hmm. like, we're all working too, our hours are too long. We're so, so there's that issue, but then learning to slow down actually takes training, I think, for us. And Mm -hmm. um, that's just how it is. And it's important training. And what comes to mind for me is when I had my daughter, as soon as your baby hits like the beginning of the toddler years, it starts to feel really chaotic because like, they're walking, but they're like, constantly falling down and bumping into things and they're grabbing all the wrong things. And they're like, hungry, and they're needy, and they cry immediately because they can't express it. So you start to feel like your brain is like, what's going on? And you, and you start to kind of react kind of yeah. more quickly because they're constantly reacting. And I just remember someone saying to me, slow it down, slow down re- your response yeah. to her. Yeah. Slow it down. She doesn't actually need this or that right away. She's actually not going to hurt herself. And what I realized was I was glad I had the training that I had in my yoga and meditation practice because I... I sensorily knew exactly what that meant. I yeah. knew what that meant internally. Like I knew it meant like, slow down your breath, slow down your nervous system, chill yep. it out a little bit, pause before reacting, pause before, you know, like pause in yes. between the thoughts, notice the worries, notice how you're responding to her. And I'm not saying I do it perfectly all the time or I have done it, but at least yeah. I have that to call on. And it is just a really, really it's just, it's a useful skill. It's a skill. Yeah. You just described the most pure, beautiful value of that skill, because you just talked about one of the most important relationships in your life, you know, and this is, this is someone you're modeling behavior for. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think everything you've said is just right. Like, yes, a lot of us are sitting at a desk and we're not moving our bodies. And I love, that's why I do love flow or or fluid or even fast paced movement. My fear lies in that. That's like a almost very Western medicine esque, you know, like you don't move your body, therefore move your body. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's kind of like you, then you also went on to describe some of the mental uh, challenges that we face, you know, this uh, with our, our, our thoughts and our minds going a million miles an hour. I kind of think that, you know, the answer almost always keeps going back to this idea of middle path. Let's meet people where they are, recognize that you want to move your body. So let's slow, 
but let's not flow to the extent that we miss any opportunity to teach this deceleration you just talked about, to teach the putting on the brakes, the pause, the listen, the observe, the witness, like, ah, I am witnessing my reaction to my daughter's experience right now. And this little pause is going to give me that opportunity to be intentional in how I respond. It might give me the opportunity to consider what do I want to model for this important human? Yeah. You know, and, and that's, I, I think it's middle path, you know? Yeah. 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 It's just, I, I think we've got very almost, I don't know if addicted is the wrong word, but certainly attached to a lot of movement. We're, you know, quite obsessed with our external landscape, as I like to call it. And so, you know, this fast paced yoga may feel like exercise and you're able to discharge stress and anxiety. And I think that is fantastic. Sure. But could we as teachers be more skillful about also including these opportunities for that slowdown? And I think that part of the problem maybe is that when we say slow, people often equate it with gentle and there's nothing wrong with gentle, but I don't think that those are synonyms mm. when in, in yoga asana, That's I don't think there's synonyms, you know, cause I can move powerfully, but slowly you know, you do think about transitions from, you know, crescent to warrior three. Could you just do that slowly? I would not call that gentle, Mm -hmm. but doing that slowly lets you observe the subtleties of both the external and the internal experience. And that's where I think we're training up some of the tools and resources that you just described, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. you can kind of like, okay, pause, ground, focus, notice, remember impermanence, this mood is going to change, you know, it's mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, oy, oy, oy. it's so true. Yeah, there's so much. Well, thank you so much, Gina. I, I have one more personal yeah. question for you, because you mentioned in your story about your Vipassana course, I will not call it yes. a retreat. <laughs> thank that you. you. One of your attachments is reading and that you have oh, to give that yeah. up, but that you read mysteries. And Jason is a huge mystery reader that he like devours them. I have an attachment to nonfiction that I see as problematic only because I don't want to read it right before I go to sleep because I get so excited. Like I read about neuroscience and I'm like, oh my God, wow, la, la, la. Uh, So I need, I need, where do I start if I want to read some mysteries? Where do I start? Well, I, okay. I, I, my answer is somewhat embarrassing, but I'll tell you my, my number one recommendation let me just first say that the I, I too love nonfiction. Reading about neuroscience, I mean, I, I'll go crazy. I also get too excited. Yeah. So when I'm in bed and I want to like tune out, I read a lot of mystery, suspense, thrillers, and I have Amazon Prime, and I basically just go to Prime Reading because oh. I started to like. It was like one of my biggest household expenses was the books I was buying on Amazon. So I had to do something different. And I went to Prime Reading and I basically just devour that entire section. Are they excellent? No. um, You know, I kind of just get to follow along some story and some of them are actually very good. I love that feeling of, oh, I know who it was. And then, wait, maybe it wasn't. Like I enjoy that little entanglement. It's just light and fun. So I, I basically devour that section. So if you were even asked me for an author, I would say, uh, I, I don't know, oh, but wow. go to the you can do prime reading and go by genre. So that's my, the embarrassing part of my answer is that I, I, when I'm reading, let's call it 
light, like L-I-T-E reading, light reading, quality is not hugely important to me. You're just but a junkie. To, You're just a mystery I, I totally, junkie. Yeah. Completely, completely. But I would say to you, that was just my honest answer. But to you who really does want to explore the genre, uh-huh. my favorite from when I was a little girl where I, my reading obsession started is Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, okay. The Sherlock uh, program on it's TV so now good. is yeah. so good. And uh, that character, I just think, is extraordinary. And he's quirky, eccentric, and there's a whole body of Sherlock Holmes books. And you can get the complete works. And if I hadn't already read it like a dozen times, I'm, I would be doing it on the reg. I mean, it, it's, I just think it's so great. Oh my God, that's great. I can't believe I've never read any of those, come to think of it. You must, you yeah. must. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yes. It'll, it'll hold you over for a while because you could do the complete works if you really get into it. Oh, cool. Yay. Well, see, I, <laughs> I learned something very valuable in this podcast as Good. I'm sure others have as well. Good. <laughs> my most recent like relaxing nighttime reading has been life-changing magic of tidying up. I mean, that's how I just can't, which is... It's great, right? But for some reason, reading about organizing is soothing me right now. I actually, I totally get that. I mean, there are personalities that we, you know, and we may have some similarities in this regard, where when things are organized, you feel more at ease. I I find it, you know how it is like packing or coming home from from a trip. Some people can just like come home and, and throw their suitcase in the living room and then it sits there for days. I feel a profound sense of relaxation when I, everything has been, uh, you know, put back away and everything has a reliable home, you know, like you can recall where it is. I get you. I yeah. totally do. And if you, if you haven't read this book, it might soothe you too. It's oh, okay. I, I can't actually <laughs> institute her process yet because she's very clear about the fact that you have to do her process like all at once. And there's no way I could do that with oh. my, ki- my kid coming in because kids are hoarders and she would like cry if she saw me throwing, <laughs> throwing things away. But I can fantasize. I can fantasize yeah. that it's going to happen someday. You can plan. That's yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. All right, my dear. So much fun talking to you. Thanks so much. Ditto. Let's yeah. do it every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone. This week, I want you to set aside five minutes of quiet to sit comfortably, close your eyes, watch your breath, maybe even go so far as labeling what happens in your mind. So thinking or planning or scheming, giving someone the energetic stink eye and voila, after five minutes, you've meditated. Show notes for this episode can be found at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 52. Until next week, enjoy your practice. <laughs>